Welcome to Recovery is Possible, a weekly podcast exploring the opioid crisis through personal stories and interviews with individuals, families, and community members. This podcast is brought to you by the Sandhills Opioid Response Consortium, funded through the HRSA Office of Rural Health Policy. In episode two, Kelly's story, we're talking to peer support specialist, Kelly Kirk. Kelly shares with us her personal story of addiction, her path to recovery, and how she uses medication-assisted treatment as a tool in her recovery. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. I want to start with just letting you tell us a little bit about your story and um, walking us through your path from addiction to recovery. Okay. Well, um, I was very sheltered when I was young. I lived in Florida, and I went to private school. And then uh, when I was about 10, my parents moved us to Houston and kind of just thrust me into this huge public school. And I had no frame of reference about cool clothes or cliques or hairstyles and everyone seemed to be in a group. So I felt really left out. But then I saw these cool kids that would sneak off and smoke at the gas station, you know, at lunch, and they just accepted me for who I was. And so that became kind of my lifestyle to be this kind of, you know, outskirts, you know, wear concert shirts and smoke weed and cuss and, and all that kind of stuff that kind of became my identity, you know, yeah, pretty early, you know. And so, you know, of course, that got me into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And my parents were pretty strict, but they also drank. So I I ran away um, when I was like 11, uh, no, 13. And they put me in the first rehab. It was like the top level of this hospital in, in Houston, all adolescents. And it was fun. I mean, it was wild, you know, all these crazy kids, you know, running around. It was like a long hallway and we all had our bedrooms and then we had a meeting room. But, um, and then my brother got put in there too and he jumped out the window and broke his leg. And, but anyway, um, so, but then I, I kind of straightened up after that and kind of changed who I was and kind of was a regular kid in high school and. Um, so were you still in Houston at that time? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had moved around in Houston a couple times, but, um, we got settled in spring Texas. And so I kind of, you know, just, um, was, you know, normal. I still, you know, partied on the weekends with my friends and stuff, but I wasn't so hardcore. And then when I was around 17, I tried freebasing cocaine mm-hmm. and it felt unbelievably good it was just like this whole warm euphoric feeling that just rushes over you it's so powerful it's like being in another reality it's just like heaven and that started like a month-long binge where I stayed gone with my boyfriend and we just did all this all this cocaine and stuff until I mean I can remember not eating for days and then someone bought me a Big Mac and it was like the best food I'd ever eaten. I was like So anyway, I ended up calling my mom because, you know, I didn't have any money or anything and 
they came and got me and put me in a rehab for four months. And that really helped me. It, it just seems like drugs was the thing that was my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. If things got bad, I would just go use these great feeling mm-hmm. drugs, you know, and then there would be all these bad consequences afterwards. Mm-hmm. But after I got out of that four month rehab, my parents moved back to Florida and I went with them and I stayed good. You know, I was, I had a job, I had a career or not a career, but starting a career and I got married. Um, we moved back to Texas. My husband and I moved back to Texas cause I want to be near my friends and everything. And I got a job at the bank. Um, I started, you know, doing really well. And then, you know, we moved back to Florida. I moved around. I've moved like 22 times. But when I was about 34, my husband told me he wanted a divorce. And that just totally devastated me. I didn't, I didn't believe in divorce. And it was like your whole foundation that you think your life is, is just cracked, you know, and I, he left and I was there alone with the boys and and they went to, they went somewhere, I think summer camp or something. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go out to the bar, you know, and see if I still have it, you know, Mm -hmm. see, you know, I need to get some attention. I, I, my self-esteem was like in the toilet, you know, Mm -hmm. because here I was rejected by my husband, you know, so pretty soon somebody had some cocaine Mm -hmm. And it was like right back to this escape, you know, mechanism. And I started buying some and I started doing it. And then I started cooking it because I knew how to cook it Mm -hmm. with baking soda. Mm -hmm. And that cooks out all the impurities and just makes it pure. And I started doing that and I had a good job and I was still getting paid. So I had a lot of money and I just kept buying more and more. And then... It just seems like every time something bad happens or something major would happen bad in my life, I would, you know, use drugs mm-hmm. as a coping mechanism. But so I went to rehab again. Where were your boys during this time? They went and stayed with their dad. So, um, so were people aware that you were? Yes. My drugs? parents, they, they, they tried to get through to me, but I just didn't want to hear it, mm-hmm. you know, and I ended up going to jail for possession and things just got really out of control. The The guy that I started dating right after my husband, he was doing it with me and it was just a mess. And it was like so many things were going on. It's hard for me to keep a, 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 a storyline mm-hmm. to keep everything included, you know, but eventually, um, you know, I married him and we st- we straightened out. We stopped doing all that and I got pregnant and I had my daughter. So then it was uh, my two sons and my daughter with him. Mm-hmm. And we stayed, ma- the first time I was married was 13 years. The second time was 13 years. Wow. So, um, but then in 2014, well, I'm skipping over stuff. I started taking pain pills like years ago because my mom took pain pills too. Mm -hmm. And my mom took lots of pills. I mean, from early on, I always remember her taking something and being under the influence of something. And so, you know, 
that was an easy thing for me to do because I saw my mom doing mm. it, you know, so I would always get prescription pills, you know, Xanax to help me calm down, pain pills to give me some energy, mm. you know, and so that went on when, when things were normal, I was doing pills, so you, you know, were never just on your own without some, sort no, of I was all pretty support. much, I mean, there were a few periods there, mm -hmm. But when I wasn't on anything, I, w I would feel depressed. I would have, like, mood swings and just anxiety. And it, it, I was just always on something, like, for most of my life, mm -hmm. you know. And it wasn't even that the pills made me high. It just regulated my life. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was anxious, I'd take the Xanax. If, you know, if I was tired but couldn't sleep, I'd take a sleeping pill. Mm -hmm. There was, like, a pill for, for everything. You know, and, you know, pretty soon your tolerance goes up. So you need more pills. Right. So go to a different doctor. Mm -hmm. And then when that's not enough, go to a third doctor. So now you're going to three or four doctors a month. And that's called doctor shopping. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that at the time. And, um, I mean, I knew it wasn't right, but I didn't realize it was illegal. So I eventually got arrested for that for taking a prescription from one doctor into the same pharmacy where I had taken the one from the other doctor. And they were like, ah, you can't do this. And I was like, really? And so like six months later, the, the U S marshals knocked on my door and arrested me. Wow. Yeah. That was terrifying. And I just remember being in jail and I hated jail. I just felt like I did not belong there. And you know, people, there was prostitutes and heroin addicts and people all around me and it was scary. And, you know, it was just like, when I think about the worst time of my life, that was it being in jail, you know? And, but yeah, so I was, you know, I was, I was managing, I was raising my kids because, you know, pain pills don't make you fall over and stuff. You're aware of what you're doing. You just, have a little jolt. It's just like a little extra something there, you know? So I, I was, that's what surprised me about pain pills, pain pills. When I saw somebody using on pain pills, I thought I would see somebody sitting in a corner kind of zoned out, yeah. but I saw a lot of energy and focus and I was, I could see the draw. The of draw. It. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's just like makes you, it's you, but extra, like right. extra you, you know? Mm -hmm. So you get used to that. And then when you don't have it, you know, your brain, the endorphins that those pills bring, pills are gone. The brain is just like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, and you just, you just feel so bad. You know, you just do anything to, mm -hmm. to get another one. You'll, I mean, and you'll justify, you'll make excuses. Well, you know, I got to have it. You know, I'm, I know I normally wouldn't do this, but I'm going to have to. I mean, you know, what am I going to do? You know, so you just start playing this whole mental game, you know, and excusing what you're doing or just not thinking about it or, right. you know, and then you, you're always hiding from people what you're doing. Oh, where are you going today? Um, you know, cause you can't tell him you're going to the doctor again, mm -hmm. you know? So then, and then you're not telling the doctor, he's like, how's your pain level? You know? So it's all these little micro lies and that lowers your moral compass, right. you know, cause you know, a normal person lying is not going to be the norm for them. But when you start lying more and more, then you get hardened mm -hmm. to that right from wrong 
you know, gauge that you normally have, you know, so. So do you feel like you said that the more pills you take, the higher your tolerance? Do you feel like the more lies you tell, the higher your tolerance? Yeah, I do think that's, yeah, it's mm -hmm. the same concept. Mm -hmm. You know, the more you do it, then you're not sensitive to and you get desensitized, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why you see drug addicts just like, They'll just lie right to your face because it's not that they're intentionally trying to deceive you. It just comes natural. Right. And I think that's something that once you get in recovery, that that sense of right from wrong comes back, mm -hmm. you know. But, I mean, in 2014 is when I decided after all the rehabs I'd been in and all the stuff I'd been through and all the jail and all the losing my career in banking and being with this person that I knew wasn't good for me. And, you know, I was like, I've had enough. I cannot do this anymore, mm -hmm. you know? And so I got onto boxing and that was like a miracle for me. So tell me you were in jail and then you, for doctor shopping, Yeah. you get out of jail. How long were you in jail? I wasn't in there long. I was only in there for, I think the, the most I was ever in jail was eight days. Okay. But I did take two felony convictions. Mm -hmm. So So yeah. you get out of jail and you you think I, I can't do this anymore. How do you then get Suboxone? You there are doctors, medicaid assisted treatment doctors, mm -hmm. and it's basically a regular doctor that takes this extra course and gets this extra license and they can have so many patients. They can see like a hundred patients or 150 patients, depending that are strictly there for Medicaid assisted treatment. Okay. And so you go to the doctor now, back in the day when you went to the doctor for Medicaid assisted treatment, they wanted to see you in full physical withdrawal before they would give it to you. Mm -hmm. So you would have to be shaking, sweating, right. you know, visibly, but now they'll let you do it sooner. They've, they've eased up on that. But normally you would go to the doctor, you know, tell him, look, you know, I'm having a major problem with these opioids. I can't do it on my own. Mm -hmm. You know, and they'll say, okay, well, we're going to put you on this medicine. And it's a safe opioid mixed with a deterrent drug mm -hmm. that you take. Take it three times a day. It will help you with the cravings. It will help you with the obsessive thoughts and, and the withdrawal symptoms. Mm -hmm. And they also make you um, go to therapy. Mm -hmm. you, you can't just take the medicine. You have to change other things, which is something that I learned, mm -hmm. too. You can't just stop using drugs. You have to stop everything. You have to change everything. Mm -hmm. So the Suboxone... How long did it take before you felt you could stop taking the opioids or sort of have a normal day? It's right away. Okay. It's, it works right away. It, it, if you're, you know, on opioids, you know, you're constantly thinking about how am I going to get more? You're, you're like preoccupied with it. It's like you want to think about what your priorities are for real, but you can't. You're, you're preoccupied with this. Your mind goes to it. And, and you're craving it and you're, you're thinking, you're plotting, you're like, it's just like this, it's crazy. But when you start taking the Suboxone, all that goes away. You just feel normal. You just feel like, for me, it was like I was seeing my life clearly for the first time. 
it was like, it just holds you steady all day. It's not this up down like mm-hmm. pills. So it's like, mm-hmm. it just keeps you on an even keel and you can think clearly. And then you can actually start focusing on putting the pieces of your life back together. So when you were able to look at your life clearly, what did you think? What a mess. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it took a while for me to kind of come to terms with the whole, the whole episode, the whole, you know, 10 year period. It was like, oh my God, you know? And so, but what I did was I just decided to focus on my life from here on out. Mm. Like there's nothing I can do about the past, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and doing research and listening to like Joyce Meyer is a big inspirational person for me. And she talks a lot about focusing on the future and not focusing on the past and letting go of the past and letting go and forgiving people that have harmed you Mm -hmm. and, and just focusing on the good and staying positive. Mm -hmm. And that plays a big role in my life big time, because I think that that doesn't come naturally to everybody. Mm -hmm. You tend to just entertain whatever thoughts come into your head, but I've realized that I don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. I can push them away. I can say that's not true. Right. You know, and I can focus on what I know instead of what I see. Yeah. I heard somebody say once, feelings aren't facts. Yeah. And I think we forget that sometimes. Yeah. We have a feeling and we assume that the feeling is there for a reason. Yeah, that is true. So medication-assisted treatment has its supporters and then it has its detractors. detractors. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest myth? Well, I think there's a lot of misconceptions with Suboxone because you do have people that are abusing it. I think with anything, there are those people that do misuse things. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, you hear about people in jail Mm -hmm. getting the Suboxone snuck snuck in through mail and whatnot Mm -hmm. and because it's really thin and small. But it's meant for people that have an opioid addiction. Mm-hmm. So someone who is doing opioids consistently daily. Right. If you are not on anything and you take a Suboxone, you're going to feel something mm-hmm. because you don't already have that dependency, that, you know, that brain thing going on and that right. chemical thing going on. So you will see um, that, you know, people thinking that Suboxone is bad because they're seeing people do it illegally. Right. And also you have um, people that are maybe heroin users and maybe they can't get any more heroin that day. So they'll buy a Suboxone so that they won't have the withdrawal Mm -hmm. symptoms. So they're using it as like a filler until they can get their next heroin or cocaine or whatever. And then you've got people that go to Medicaid-assisted treatment appointments with the intention of selling their whole prescription. Wow. So, and, and... Like I work at Dr. Gillum's office and I go in and talk to the patients after he talks to them and I can spot the ones Mm -hmm. that are not for real. And it's a shame because Mm -hmm. they're giving it a bad name when I know for, for, from personal experience that it can, it does save lives. It saved my life Mm -hmm. because every time I tried to stop opioids on my own, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I would last, you know, a couple weeks at the most eight months and I would, it was too hard because my brain 
for so many years. It, it's circ. It's it's wired to right. need that, and so you know, for the time being, I'm going to stay on it because mm-hmm. I feel like there are those who say, "Oh, you you know that's that's still using." Well, would you rather someone? think that that's not an option for them and then overdose. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There has to be, there has to be a use for it. There has to be a place for it for mm-hmm. people that can, that really are struggling to maintain their recovery. That's something that would be good for them. Maybe it's not good for everybody, right? but there are people that can benefit from them. And it's actually recommended by the government, the opioid crisis. That's what that is, the recommended treatment for it. So... So you talk about using Suboxone, but then you do a lot of other things to support your recovery. Yes. So it's not a light switch. You don't just take that and then suddenly you don't have problems or you don't have to do anything else. What else do you do? Um, I think my thinking is the most important thing for me. Mm -hmm. And and also having a relationship with a higher power Mm -hmm. is really super important because you really need to have something bigger than you, whether it's God or Allah or whoever you think it is that you can lean on, that you can confide in and you can draw strength from. You've got to have someone besides you that, that can help you. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to have, um, natural supports, whether it's a friend that you, that you know has your best interest at heart Mm -hmm. or, you know, your, your parents or whoever it is having natural supports is really important. Another thing that I have to do is go to therapy regularly and hold myself accountable, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that I am dealing with things that come up because right. once you get into recovery, things start coming up that you kind of push down right. and you want to make sure that you deal with those in a healthy way and kind of talk through them. Mm-hmm. I think journaling is another way to do that. Mm-hmm. If you've got a lot of issues that you, you know, just postpone dealing with them. Just, or, or you're having one of those days where, you know, you're having these thoughts, these racing, you know, or you're thinking about a time when something happened and you're just replaying it and you're experiencing all those emotions again. If you can write that down mm-hmm. and it doesn't even have to be neat, you just start writing like, I feel like da, 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 and just, and before you know it, you're like eight pages in, right. you know, and, and then you can put the pen down and then. You know, you don't have to think about it anymore because you've already put it on the paper. So, like, that's a really good way for me to deal with, you know, overwhelming thoughts or memories or things that I'm trying to deal with. So, does that help you from ruminating, from sticking with that for yeah obsessive amounts of time? Yes, because mm-hmm. I will do that. And I think self-talk mm-hmm. is a big thing for me. Like, because, you know, our minds are running... 24 hours a day and whether you're, you know, if you're standing there doing the dishes, you're thinking about something, you're in the shower, you're thinking about something. And a lot of times our minds will go back to memories, Mm. you know, Oh, that time, you know, but if, if that starts happening to me now and I start thinking about a bad time, I'll be like, you know what? No, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then I'll on purpose think about, you know, what am I going to make for dinner? Or, Mm. cause I feel like, you can only think about one thing at a time. So if you can knock that out of there with another thought, then you've refocused on this new thought and the other one has to pass. You can't keep it. 
that's you know? interesting. So yeah. it's like one thing at a time and you can choose what goes in there. Right. You know, and also not being hard on myself. Mm-hmm. Like I could sit here and think about all the bad things I've done mm-hmm. and all the terrible decisions I've made, but what is that going to get me? Nothing. Right. I have to only, all we have is right now. All I have right now is today. So all I can do is do the best I can for today and stay positive and don't be hard on myself. I mean, I'm going to make mistakes. Right. It's okay. You know, cause I used to be like, damn, you know, you're so stupid. Why did you do that? Yeah. And now I'm like, you know, what's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, right. It happens. Just move on. <laughs> do you think that forgiving yourself is a process? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I think it's like the same with forgiving other people. You just have to, Kind of realize that, you know, yeah, you did what you did. And, you know, as long as you're sorry for it and, you know, talk to your higher power about right. it and try to make amends with the people that you've hurt, if possible. Right. You know, go back. Like, my sons didn't talk to me for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And I understood, you know, and I think people in early recovery need to kind of keep that in mind because you, you tend to want everyone to see the new you. And they're still skeptical. And so I think you have to prove it. People don't pay attention to what you say. They pay attention to what you do. And they'll come around. And you had been to rehab several times. Yeah. So what advice or support would you offer to someone who has been to rehab multiple times and still struggles with active addiction? I think don't give up. Mm -hmm. One of the times it's going to click with you. And you'll always draw on all the things that you learned over all those times. I still draw on the ones, you know, I've been in like five or six of them, maybe more. And they were all good experiences when I look back on it now. Mm-hmm. Don't give up because, you know, everybody's got their rock bottom. And then sometimes there's a, a trap door on that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it comes down to that desire to want to stop. If you really, really want to change and you really, really, really have had enough, you're going to do what it takes. Mm -hmm. You might fall back off a minute. That's okay. Get right back up. Because I think sometimes, you know, when you start your, you, you go back to that old behavior and you do it and then you regret it and you're like, okay, yeah, this confirms that I do not want to go to do this again. Let's get back up. And, you know, so I think relapse is a part of recovery. It's, it's like, pretty much count on it you right. know it's not a sign that it's completely over right it's just part of the process yeah and some people feel like that they feel like they failed but I think it's just part of it right <clears throat> as a peer support specialist you work with a lot of people who are in various stages of addiction and recovery what would you say is the biggest barrier to someone pursuing treatment or you know seeking support probably a big factor I think is poverty I think that um, if you don't have Medicaid and you don't have insurance, your options are very limited on where you can go. I mean, you just basically went from 10 to 1 on your options. Right. I was going to ask you, because these doctors, you have to have insurance. You do. To go see the doctor. So if you don't have that insurance, do you go to a public facility? They don't really have anything. I can tell you it's about $200 a month. Mm-hmm. If you're going to pay cash and then your medicine, you can get it for about $80 a month if you use a good RX card. And 
shop around. If you go to thegoodrx.com, you can shop the pharmacies. It'll tell you the different prices for your medication. Right. And it really does save a lot to use that card. I was I surprised. It, yeah. I was like, wow. Sometimes it's less than a copay. Yeah. yeah. I was like, okay, I'm definitely using this. But So when you yeah. think about $280 a month and then you think about what somebody might be spending on drugs. That's what, when people, when I talk to them about medicaid assisted treatment, they're like, oh my God, it's that much. I'm like, yeah, but think about how much you're spending each day on each bag of drugs that you buy. You're just thinking, you know, if you add all that up, you're actually probably saving money and you're going to feel normal. And and the good thing about medicaid assisted treatment too with Suboxone is it's got that deterrent drug in there. Mm -hmm. So that means, you know, if I take a, if I'm going to get on Suboxone treatment and I'm going to get my life together. But then someone offers me some heroin. I'm more than likely not going to do that heroin because I know that that extra drug is now in my body where right. if I do that heroin, I'm going to get deathly sick. Right. So that's kind of like a deterrent. You know, methadone doesn't have that. Suboxone has that. And also you can't really, you don't get messed up on Suboxone. You can get loaded on methadone mm-hmm. and you will see people nodding off on methadone mm-hmm. and you have to go every day for that. So I'm a big proponent of Suboxone because you cannot get wasted on that. You're either taking it or you're not. It's not different levels, you know, and you've got that deterrent drug in there. So you don't taper down on Suboxone the way you do with methadone? You don't taper up and down, no. You pretty much stay on the same dose. So I want to talk for a minute because in your story you, you dealt with having custody of your kids and then not having custody of your kids. And I think that that's a unique part of your story. Well, I, I had custody of them the whole time, but I did have DSS involvement. So talk to me about that. So, um, there was some domestic violence in my marriage and, um, my daughter saw something. She Mm -hmm. saw my husband like jump at me and strangle me. Mm -hmm. And, um, I called the police afterwards, mm-hmm. and when they came, you know, they asked me, did my daughter see it? And I said, yeah, she was there, mm-hmm. you know, because it was unexpected. It wasn't something that we were screaming, and it just kind of happened. So DSS came to my door like a week later, and I, I was, I didn't know they were going to come. Right. You know, they just, the police called them, and they came like a week later. And so I got to experience the whole having these social workers be involved in intimately in my life. Right. And we had to go to court because my husband was going to, he was going to be in trouble for what he did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we got through the process. We each had to do classes, mm-hmm. you know, had to do like parenting classes. He had to do anger management and, and a bunch of other things. And there were, I mean, you, when you think about domestic violence, you think about this monster husband, you know, but that's not always how it is. Like, you you know what I mean? Like, there are just episodes. But between mm-hmm. the episodes, everything's okay. And and that's still that person that you fell in love with. Right. You know, so you, you tend to... Anyway, I'm getting into domestic violence. Do you think part. that domestic violence impacted your addiction or it played a role? I think it played a role in keeping my self-esteem down mm-hmm. and, and making me feel dependent. Mm-hmm. Do you think you know, it made you anxious? Because you say in between the episodes, that person is the same, but are you always nervous in between episodes? Wondering. Whenever it was, this was happening whenever he would drink. 
mm. which was like pretty much every day. But it was when he got really drunk mm-hmm. and it would happen. But um, it didn't happen considering we were together for all together 14 years. It didn't happen that many times. Mm-hmm. It was probably a handful of times. So it wasn't a regular occurrence. But when it did happen, it was like pretty dramatic. So, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate compared to some other women, mm-hmm. you know, that really go through it, you know, but it did play a part and, and not just the physical stuff, but the whole, you know, other things that spouses can do, right. you know, but then, I mean, I, I have to take responsibility for what I was doing too, which was right. not the right thing. You, you know, I shouldn't have been taking pills to cope with life. I should have tried to fix my situation, you know, mm-hmm. but that was what was easier and it was more readily available and what I was used to. It was natural. It was normal. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw my parents drinking and taking pills and right. stuff. And so it's so much easier when, when you see your parents doing it right. because then somehow it's okay. It, it's one of the, it's one of the options now, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, yeah. It probably wouldn't be scary. If yeah. you've grown up with it, was it's there ever norm. a point in your drug use that you felt scared by what you were doing? Um, yeah. Yeah. I can remember being in my closet. I was by myself and I had all this cocaine and I, I was just doing it so fast, but I wasn't feeling anything anymore, but my heart was pounding mm-hmm. out of my chest and I just knew I, I couldn't stop. I was just doing it, doing it, doing it. And I was like in this frenzy or something and I was like I, I gotta I gotta get I gotta go to the hospital like mm. I could feel something and I called my mom and she came and took me to the hospital and what did they say at the they hospital? took me to detox in Miami <sighs> but that was like a bunch of people just laying around all messed up yeah. you know so yeah did you stay I stayed a couple days yeah. but this was one of those ones where I think they just drug everybody that's there because there are just people laying around on all these couches like all <laughs> messed up. I don't even hardly remember half of it but it was wild. Yeah but the um, the DSS part though um, you know now working with families a lot of the people that I work with have open cases and are at serious risk of losing their children and I mean Almost all of them are good people. I was going to ask you, when we hear about people who lose custody of their children or have cases open or whatever, yeah. I think that there's this tendency to judge them yes. as bad parents or they don't care about their children. Or What's your experience? My experience is it's usually um, one episode mm-hmm. that causes it. You know, like, for instance, I had one client who... Um, she had issues with anxiety and one time she took, I think she took a Xanax and then she forgot she took it and she took another one or Mm -hmm. something like that. And she had the baby and she fell with the baby Mm -hmm. and the baby had bruises and she didn't even remember falling. Mm -hmm. And the next day she was changing the baby and the baby had some bruises. And so they took the baby to the hospital, you know, with, you know, they wanted to know what happened. They didn't know what happened. And, it turns out that it was because she had passed out and fell on the baby. Mm-hmm. Or that's what they think. And that's, you know, that's like basically the only logical explanation. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, here she is, a mother of two little girls, stay-at-home mom, mm-hmm. you know, and she's in big trouble. Right. You know, all because of these drugs or, 
you know, other parents where it, it's, it's all, it's 90, it's actually 75 to 85% of the cases that DSS has mm-hmm. are because of substance misuse. Yeah. I mean, it plays such a big part. And that's why I think it's so important that, you know, that DHHS does more to offer, you know, treatments to these parents, mm-hmm. you know, because they spend a lot of time and money on resources and, and training the caseworkers to, but it, we really need, I think, more money focused on the actual treatment, you know, the treatments that are available to these parents. Mm-hmm. Because like today, I worked so hard to help my one client. She has two babies. Her husband died and her kids were taken away. But we found her a treatment where she can take her kids. We thought it was going to be easy. <laughs> they needed a physical a TB test. They needed three forms from her doctor, three forms from the baby's doctor. They needed like all this stuff before they would even interview her. So, and that sounds harder to get than you would think. I mean, you know, you have to call and fax and yeah. email and no one's answering. So you got to follow up and then you got to call these. So for like two weeks straight, I worked on this. And then this morning she went with her kids. Oh, wow. So I'm excited for her yeah. because I think this is going to be like a fresh start for her, you know? So it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, once DSS is involved in your life, they have a duty to make sure right. that your children are going to be cared for and you're not going to be high in front of your kids. Mm-hmm. So I see it from both sides because I work with the caseworkers and then I work with the clients, you know, so it's kind of like a balancing act, but I, I like doing it because I know how it feels. Right. And I know that they can, as long as they do their case plan and they do the things they're supposed to do and, and provide good drug screens, then they'll, they'll be fine. So there's hope. There's hope. Do you yeah. feel like most of the parents care? Yeah. And they want to do the right thing? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, they do. I think that's a big misconception. This yeah. idea that people don't care. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Because I think there's a lot of stigma around... People that use drugs, they do think that they're like low rent or they don't care or, you know, that they're. Yeah, that they do it without concern for other people. All right. The last question I have for you is um, if you could describe your life in three words while you were actively using drugs, what would they be? Hmm. I would say despair, loneliness. And confusion. Mm. And what would you say about your life now? I would say positive, faithful, and happy. Wow. Yeah. That's a big change. It is. Actually, it is. And it's possible. Yeah. Even after multiple rounds of rehab and... I think you just need that one thing, which is the desire. Mm-hmm. If you've got that desire and you're ready, then there's not going to be anything to stop you. And I've talked to so many people who each person's story is so different. I think that there's a myth that everybody's story is the same, that addiction is one story. But everybody's story is different, both in terms of how they got there and how they got out of it. And so there's not one one path. No one recovery path. No one recovery path. Yeah. yeah. 
Thank you for telling us about your path and for sharing so much of your story with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Recovery is Possible, sponsored by the Sandhills Opioid Response Consortium. For more information on treatment and recovery, visit our website at firsthealth.org slash recovery resources, where you can find additional resources, connect with a peer support specialist, and much more.